This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 3rd, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. This is a reading from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is God's word. Praise be to God. You may have a seat. I'm going to pray to our Heavenly Father. Father, we praise Your good name through the good name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, by the good name of Your Spirit. We praise Your power. We praise the reality that You are the one who heals the helpless and gives hope to the hopeless. We praise Your unrelenting love and desire to heal those who are brokenhearted and to redeem those who are enslaved. We confess, Lord, that we are sinners saved by grace. We confess that we put our faith in the name of many things more than we often put our faith in the name of Jesus. We confess that we are weak, but we pretend to be strong. That we are foolish, but we pretend to be wise. We confess that we have forgotten the joy of our salvation and often fail to praise Jesus, our Redeemer, as we ought. But we are thankful. We are thankful for the forgiveness we have in Jesus Christ that even when our faith fails, Lord, You remain faithful. We are thankful that Jesus sacrificed His own good name that we might be redeemed from our bad one. We are thankful that You are committed to completing the good work that You began to help us walk by Your Spirit in a manner worthy of the name of Your Son, Jesus. We ask, Father, that You will reveal Yourself to us in Your Word this morning, that You will confront us with Your Word, that You will change us by Your Word, We ask, King Jesus, that You'll remind us who we were apart from You so that we will praise who we are with You. 
And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'll give us a love for one another as the church, a love that hopes all things, believes all things, and bears all things together in love as we stir one another up towards good works. Make us, by your Spirit, Father, devoted to the name of Jesus more than we are devoted to our own. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We are in the book of Acts. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We will be through what I consider the first two parts of Acts, which are actually six. By the end of the summer, we'll be at the end of Acts chapter 9. We've seen in Acts chapter 2, we're in Acts chapter 3 today, that the first sermon Peter preached resulted in the conversion, the baptism of 3,000 believers. And through the plain and simple preaching of the gospel, thousands were powerfully transformed by faith. And this new faith was characterized by some new changes. A change in the relationship with God and a change in the relationship with one another that was most evident as we read the end of Acts chapter 2 through a new relationship, a transformed relationship with their time, with their energy, and even with their stuff. From the moment they were changed, from the moment they believed, the church began to gather together regularly, gathering in public, gathering in private, to devote themselves to several things, to teaching the Bible, to experiencing the Bible, to praying the Bible, and to applying the Bible to their daily lives so that the world might see the glory of God on display. And through faith in Jesus doing something for them, the Holy Spirit had begun to do something in them and among them. And this is not something that is just for the early church. This is not something that's just exclusive to the early church. We ought not read the book of Acts and go, oh, that doesn't happen anymore. That won't happen anymore. That was just for these believers at this time. The reality is we are still saved by the same Savior and the same Spirit. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that since we have the same Spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, so we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into His presence. For it is all for the sake of God's people that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving and glory to God. So the same Spirit that brought these believers into the presence of God and then brought those believers into one another's presence in a rich and beautiful way is the same Spirit today that does the same thing to us. As we saw last week, life together as the church, as God's gathered people reveals Jesus not just to us, but it preaches Jesus to the world. And that is why we gather here as Mark talked about. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to be served. We're not here to be captivated by the performances of men and women. We gather to worship God in word and indeed, so that grace, the undeserved 
favor of God is experienced by more people and more praise is offered to God our Savior. Anything less than that purpose for our gathering is a complete waste of time. But I've been a Christian long enough, been involved in church long enough, been in leadership in the church long enough to realize how easy it is to become devoted to other wasteful things. For the gathering to become about the wrong things. It is not uncommon for churches to fill their services with good words that are not God's words. To become devoted to many good things that are not necessarily God's things. To hope and preach in the power of many good names, whether it be the name of a particular preacher, the name of a particular ministry, even the name of a church more than the name of Jesus Christ. I've seen it. And you'd think that after such an effective sermon by Peter, it, followed by this miraculous launch of such a large church that the disciples, and particularly Peter, might be tempted to think highly of himself. Man, did you see what happened when I preached? Like some kind of rock star pastor. After all, these were the same guys that just over a month ago had been arguing with one another about who the greatest was. And you think Peter would be like, I think it's clear, <laughs> isn't it, fellas? But the church is faced with a challenge, right? What really saves? Is some dude's preaching? What really changes? What really grows and what really heals. The simplicity of Peter's sermon reveals that the people couldn't have been stirred by his amazing knowledge of the Old Testament, by his funny jokes, by his great sermon illustration, or even his organized thoughts. The power actually resided in one thing he said. It's in Verses 38 and 39 where he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The power was, is, and will be in the name of Jesus Christ. That is what the transformation was ignited by. That is what the people were putting their faith in. Not in Peter, not in the people, not in the great programs they were going to put together, but in the name and person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as you read Acts 3, and really most of Acts, the narratives are quite simple and they're pretty straightforward. And so as life goes on, they've started to gather as the church, you see that like many other Jews, the disciples are still practicing their Judaism, following the Jewish rhythms that they'd been following for most of their lives. And they are attending the temple at three o'clock prayers. And so masses of people would come, crowds of people were going to experience the prayers in the temple. And so they would enter into the 
outer Gentile court. And then if you ever look at Herod's temple, you see there were stairs going in where you would go through different gates into the inner court. And so they are on their way and they're ascending these stairs. And as they ascend the stairs and enter into what is called the beautiful gate, and scholars disagree exactly what gate it is, but it is largely the entrance into the temple that's beautifully and ornately decorated. A gate that just screams of wealth. It says that there was a lame man from birth who was being carried whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So you have a lame man. And there are many reasons why someone might not be able to walk, why someone might be crippled like this. And it tells us in this case, this man was born in this condition. It reminded me of John chapter 9 where the disciples and Jesus come across a blind man and they ask him, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Was it because his parents sinned? Or was it because he sinned? What's the reason? He said, this has nothing to do with that. He says, this man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he gives him sight. I argue it's the same reason that this man is crippled. So that the work of God might be displayed in him for them and for us today. For many years, it seems, this man had been carried by his friends or his family and laid at the temple steps. He was not allowed to go into the inner court. Likely, this man had never walked a day in his life, never stood on his own two feet. He lived life as a beggar, putting his trust for living in the compassion and the mercy of anyone attending the temple willing to give him a coin. And every coin that he was given certainly changed his circumstances momentarily. It relieved his pain temporarily. But no matter how many coins he would ever be given, no amount of money would change his fundamental condition. He would always be crippled. He may be the wealthiest cripple there was, but he would always be crippled. Now, it's noteworthy, I think, that this is the first miracle that the apostles experience or participate in. It will not be the last. And it's important to look beyond the, the physical picture that's described here concerning this man. That is important. There's historical, tangible, real miracles happening here. But I think in many ways, this story, out of all the stories that could have been told, out of all the stories that could have been shared with Luke as he's investigating this, this is a story that was shared. And I think in many ways, we need to see the spiritual reality that is implied for us all. While we may not suffer, God willing, a debilitating condition like this, we all suffer from a debilitating condition that began at birth. It's called original sin. It's becoming an old term now, but it's an important one. Churches have avoided talking about sin for all too long. And as a result, the grace of Jesus becomes that much more meaningless without it. But 
According to Genesis 8.21, Moses wrote that the intent of a man's heart is evil from his youth. King David wrote in Psalm 51.5 that he was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. The Apostle Paul, who's quoting the Psalms in Romans 3, says that there is none righteous, there is not one No one understands. No one who seeks for God. No one who does good. No one who fears God. Not even one. And later Paul would write in Ephesians 2 that apart from Jesus, men are dead in their sin and by nature they are children of wrath. See, our problem is not physical. Even if we have physical problems. Our problems are not emotional They're not primarily intellectual, material, or circumstantial. We have a spiritual condition that cannot be fixed with earthly things. From birth, everyone. But that doesn't stop us from trying. Trying to fix what can't be fixed in and of ourselves. And just as this man begs others for help, We too beg for external solutions to what is an internal problem. We think we know what we need. And for you and for I, it may sound like, well, if I only had a better job. If I only had some better health or better relationships or better situations, things would be better. If I only had more money, just a little bit more, if I had more time, if I had more help, if I had more opportunity, whatever is broken right now in my life would be healed. I would be at peace. I would be relieved. See, all men are crippled by the same sin, but it reveals itself in different ways. Truth is, we don't need provision in our brokenness, though that might relieve us temporarily. We need freedom and healing from it. And so we ask for alms, we ask for help, we ask for coins, we ask for external things because we are blind to what we truly need. And I would argue we're blind to what others need. So Peter and John, as you watch what they do, I felt myself very convicted. They hear this man asking for help. And if we're honest, we, in seeing the reaction, perhaps feel as if we may act the opposite way. Literally, when we see those in need asking for material help, begging for their needs to be satisfied by us, I think many of us probably fight not to make eye contact. We cross the street. We avoid. We sit in our cars at the light and start fiddling with our radios or looking at our phones so we don't have to look and see the need. Or we imagine in our minds like, well, I've seen that guy here for five years. Surely he could have found some kind of job by now. He couldn't really need help. I think 
Similarly, we do the same thing with those in need of spiritual healing. We don't see even the material needs, but then beyond that, we don't consider the spiritual needs of people that that person, any person, all people need Jesus. Well, Peter and John, as they see this man, they direct their gaze at him, it says. And they say, look at us. They don't avoid eye contact. Look at us. It's amazing how people avoid eye contact just in life these days. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold. You can imagine for a second, like, really? The disappointment in that man went from joy to, oh, really? You got nothing for me? You don't have what I want? You don't have what, what I know that I need? And he says, no, look at us. I got nothing for you that you think you need. But what I do have, I give to you. In many ways, that's Peter himself saying, I have nothing. But I know someone who does. I find it troubling. And I, when I say that, I mean that even personally in my own heart and my own flesh. That when we see people in the material brokenness that I'm not always compelled to help. I'm not always moved to compassion. Can we even imagine our world, what it would look like if we actually took Jesus' commands literally when He says stuff like, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. Wow, He can't mean that really. But again, what about the spiritual brokenness that we clearly see? Are we moved to compassion or just criticism? Are we moved to get close or just to separate? I find it even more troubling how much confidence we actually put in so many other things to heal and fix and change other than the name of Jesus. And that's evidenced by what we actually offer those people in need. As we get close enough to hear their needs and their problems in place of Jesus, I'm not sure that's the first place we think. The first name that comes to our mind. Instead, we invite others to put confidence in good thinking, in good effort, in good books, in good pills, in a good podcast. Many good things that actually can relieve but not redeem. And in doing so, I think we reveal what we ourselves believe about Jesus. What we actually believe relieves and redeems. Peter doesn't give this man what he wants or what he thinks he needs. He actually looks at him and sees what he desperately needs, and it's more than coins. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You know, there are many things that can change someone's circumstances, but there's only one thing that can change a man's condition. There is a greater need beyond our needs. Beyond the needs that we see. There's a need that we don't see. A need that only Jesus can satisfy. One that only Jesus can relieve. One that only Jesus can fix. And in many times, difficult circumstances reveals that reality. 
As I said, it's not that Peter doesn't have anything to offer. He simply knows that the best thing he has to offer has nothing to do with earthly things. I think many times we wrongly feel this pressure to solve people's spiritual problems as they share them with earthly solutions. And we, we almost are um, afraid to share what the Bible says is the solution because of maybe how it sounds. Sounds weird. Sounds so spiritual. I don't want to be religious. What is wrong with us? I would argue that what we actually offer as the first solution, as the most frequent solution, reveals what we believe about our own solution to our own problems. I was reminded a couple weeks ago, Heidi Rush, Chris is up here singing this morning, Heidi, pray for her. She had a kidney infection a few days ago and had to go to the hospital and she's healing up. But she shared with me a really cool story. A friend of hers had called her, hadn't talked to her for some time, and she was sharing uh, just a desperate situation, a situation of brokenness, a situation where she was just hurting and in need of some help, in need of some counsel. And Heidi was talking with her, and I don't know if she felt this way. It sensed that she felt kind of overwhelmed, like, wow, that's a lot. I don't even know what to tell this person. And so... What she told her was this, you know, I, I'm broken myself, and, and I don't have much to offer you in terms of solutions. All I have is Jesus. And she was struck by the response because in summary it was, yeah, that's what I think I need. Where do you go to church? Because I think I need to be with God's people. We're not quick to do that because we think it sounds silly. And in many ways, it reveals that we don't believe in the power of the name. We, we believe in the power of our wisdom, the power of whatever to fix, us to figure out, but not just in the power of the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And throughout the Old Testament, if, if you survey the Old Testament, just do a word search, it's amazing how many times God's people are encouraged and even commanded toward the name of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, to call upon the name of the Lord, to run to the name of the Lord, to seek help in the name of the Lord, to fear the name of the Lord above all else, over and over and over again. I'm sure many of you know the story of David and Goliath. So when my young son offers to read the Bible, he typically, whether it be in the Jesus storybook, whether it be in his Bible, he always opens to the story of David and Goliath. Probably because his dad does really good Goliath voices, right? But as hopefully you're familiar Many of us with the story of David and Goliath, it's become a cultural thing that people are familiar with. But ask yourself a question, how does David kill Goliath? How does David, small David, little David, confront this impossible situation? How does David, this boy, conquer such an indestructible enemy? 
And as your mind begins to go like, okay, what was that story? Okay, yeah, I think I... He, he was just really brave. Oh, no, no, he... Well, he killed him by, by small stones. That was it. And I would say, no and no. As you read the story, you realize that he conquered Goliath by the name of the Lord. Let me prove it to you. First Samuel 17, that has the whole story of David and how it progresses from him visiting his brothers to where he is volunteers to go fight Goliath because no one else will. And as he walks out there and Goliath's just like, what are you little man? Who sends this little punk out here? I'm going to kill you. You know, all these things. David responds to this giant who's threatening all kinds of things. It says, And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies whom you have defied. The name of the Lord. Do you know in the next chapter of Acts, chapter 4, which will be in a couple weeks, Peter will declare as he preaches kind of in response to this miracle we're reading about today, that there is salvation in no one else and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He tells him the name of the Lord that is most important, Jesus. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul will confirm this same truth saying, Jesus has been given supremacy as He has a name over every other name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. That even if we get wisdom and time and health and money or the relationships or the opportunities that we think we need to live, the truth is we remain crippled even with those things, if we don't have Jesus. And so Peter gives this man the only thing he has to give. Victory in Jesus' name. Healing in Jesus' name. He reaches down and he takes this man by the hand, which I think is a beautiful picture because especially in our social media culture today, we make it too easy for ourselves to stand at a distance and just kind of throw truth at people. You need Jesus. You need the Bible. You're in sin. Peter and James are close enough to see and to touch. In many ways, I argue that they enter into this man's brokenness like Jesus entered into ours. They get close enough to actually speak words of truth Words of hope and words of power. And we see a miracle happen. It says, He took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Which, if you have kids, you know that that's one of the songs that they sing. And you're like, what? it's from Acts chapter 3. They're just singing Bible. What happens when someone's saved by Jesus? What happens when someone's healed by Jesus in the deepest way? An immediate 
change. Just as this man's physical condition was instantly transformed, the heart of a believer is transformed in a moment. When they put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's not that, well, now that you believe, someday you'll become a new... No, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. This man is not recovering. Nor does he identify as recovered. Now, hear me carefully. I say that because that's become a vernacular in our culture. And I don't want to dismiss the genuine freedom and amazing victory that many have experienced in conquering sinful addiction. At the same time, the words that we use are important because they reveal truth. Healing doesn't mean identifying as in recovery forever. I find that many, certainly not all, who experience tremendous healings and freedom from slavery tend to identify themselves according to their past sin. It's almost as if that's all they talk about. I'm not sure this man walked around telling people, I'm a lame man in recovery. I believe he said, I was lame and Jesus made me walk. And when you walk away, you heard more about Jesus than you did his lameness. Jesus doesn't save us to merely change our situation and improve it, but to make us brand new and transform us completely. And so we see this man, though, go from a really quick and genuine progression in his response to the name of Jesus, right? The first thing, he's standing. He rises up from where he was lying down. He was on the ground, broken, couldn't move himself, had to be carried wherever he went, and now he's standing on his own two feet. He is no longer weak, he is strong. And that has all kinds of implications for it. But he is able to stand where he was once enslaved to a condition. But he does more than that, right? It says he stands, He's strengthened with a strength he didn't have before, and now he is walking. Well, that implies that he's not merely standing still. Well, duh, Pastor said, duh. But I would argue he's not just standing st still, dwelling on what Jesus has done for him, he's moving. The grace that saved him. The grace that restored him is the grace that is moving him and compelling him. His life is literally an act of walking in the newness, doing something and living in a way he has never lived before. And as he does this, as he walks, as he starts to learn new ways of living, right? He's never walked before. So you imagine like a, like, like a new kid just learning to walk. Like, okay, he's going to stumble a little bit, but he's going. And you've seen the excitement of a little kid when they first walk. Like, oh my gosh, this world just got so much bigger. He's leaping. He's leaping. There's a joy about him. Now there's nothing more 
precious and encouraging and inspiring than being around new believers who are filled with that kind of joy. And you know why there's a genuine joy there? Because when you're transformed from an unbeliever to a believer, it's akin to being transformed from being blind your whole life to being able to see. From being a lame man who could never walk to walking for the first time. This is why the prophet Malachi said, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You know what a calf from the stall is talking about when that calf is born? And within seconds, if not just minutes, they're standing, right? And they're like, kind of get their bearings. And then what do they do? They start going crazy. And they're leaping, kicking their legs up, all excited because they're just like, whoa, I've just been looking at the inside of my mom for like a long time. And now there's a whole new world and I can move when I was all stuck like this. I'm free. There's a joy. This man never leapt like that for a single handout. Why? Because he knew tomorrow he would be at the gate again in the same place with the same needs. But with Jesus, everything had changed. Nothing would ever be the same again. And there was a joy to that. And this man doesn't leap around praising Peter and John, which is hugely important, right? It's like, woo, thank you, Pete. Thank you, John. Yes, he is leaping around praising God. I recently read a really intriguing account of some Americans who in the late 19th century visited London, England, uh, to hear some well-known preachers. Two preachers in particular, a man named Joseph Parker, which you may not be familiar with, and a man named Charles Spurgeon. And so they went to the morning service at Joseph Parker's church, and after that service, one in their group exclaimed, I, I do declare it must be said for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher there ever was. That man could preach. And so that evening, they attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is the home church of Charles Spurgeon. But they were not prepared for what they heard at this church. And after the service, one of them spoke again, perhaps the same person, saying, I do declare, it must be said, that there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior there ever was. There's a world of difference between those two statements. See, there are many good things that people can see in our lives, but none of them matter if they're not God's things. There are many names that our lives will bear witness to as the place of hope, the solution to all problems, the thing worthy of praise, but the only one that truly matters is the name of 
Jesus. Now everyone knew this man was a beggar at the beautiful gate, and we see in the last two verses that Jesus took a nameless beggar. They never name him, which is always important in Scripture. Trying to give us a picture of something bigger, right? This nameless beggar becomes a witness for the name. It says, all the people who saw him walking and praising God recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. I know that guy. That guy's been there for years. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And then Peter's going to preach an amazing sermon and say, this is all about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I would ask us all to consider not only how we are standing and walking in this life, but also what we are leaping and praising in our lives. Now, I believe this is a difficult thing to assess in ourselves, partly because we're not really honest when we examine ourselves, but partly because we're blind to our own blindness. I think it's fair to ask those who know us best and see us most what we praise most, what we leap for most. There are many eyes watching us and many ears listening to us. C.S. Lewis famously say that, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's a, it's a pointed consummation. He says that praise is the completion of joy. So that which receives the most praise in our lives reveals more than likely the Savior that we love and enjoy most. And so what do we leap for most? What do we praise most? Not just in the quietness of our own heart, but with our families, with our friends, in our community. Do we praise Jesus most? Do we most naturally leap for Jesus? Is that what causes people to amaze and wonder about our lives? Is Jesus the name that we cling to when we are weak and when we are in need, or when we meet others who are in need or weak? Are we going to Jesus first? What about when we're strong and when we succeed? Are we pointing to Jesus as the reason for that? With gratitude and appreciation for all that He has done despite us? Are our lives characterized by praise for the One who changed and is changing our lives? Because it's actually quite easy and Natural for us to praise Jesus in the first moments of our transformation. For those who have known Christ for some time, do you remember those days? It seems like as time goes by, I wonder if we tend to not praise Jesus as much as we did when we were first given life because we have begun to depend on other things other than Jesus for our daily life. As if we think we don't need Jesus like we once did. I mean, I remember when I was lame, when I was blind, when I was, I mean, I really needed Jesus then. 
But what about now? In order to live a life that trusts in the name of Jesus, leaps at the name of Jesus, and praises the name of Jesus in all that we do, we must actively begin by preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. That Jesus saves sinners by grace through faith. The gospel is, is not just the basic facts to believe about what Jesus did in his life and what he accomplished by his death and what he accomplished by his resurrection. It's not just the basic facts to, to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's a confession that you are broken beyond self-repair and believe that you are loved and forgiven and restored beyond imagination. And we preach it every day because we need to remember that we're not saved by belief in the gospel and then suddenly changed by behavior. We are saved by the name of Jesus and continually changed by the name of Jesus. Jesus heals us and Jesus is healing us until we are fully healed and in the presence of our, our God and Savior. The gospel is simple, right? Jesus dies the death that sinners deserve and gives them the life that they don't. But the name of Jesus is not just the power for new life. It is the power for living that life. If we're to keep leaping and praising the name of Jesus, here's what we must ask ourselves. Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. That's what David prays. Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I realize that, that when I say like, man, we should be joyful in our salvation, remembering who we were and who we are in Christ. We're like, yeah, I, I was like that at one time. I don't know. Did you know that God wants to answer that prayer? That you can pray and ask Him to restore the joy of your salvation. Think about a marriage. I know many of us have been married for many years, and after many years, sometimes the romance that was there, the joy that was so natural and easy, after 25 years, you're like, yeah, I'm just trying to survive. Did you know that the Lord can restore joy to that relationship? If you ask Him, that He can restore joy in your family, in your marriage. And He restores joy first and foremost in His relationship to Him. It's a prayer. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. You see, I... I believe that, that it's important we see ourselves as helpless, lame beggars who are in need of Jesus' help in more ways than we'll ever admit or know. Because happy, Jesus says, blessed, Jesus says, are those who are poor in spirit. Sin is not just this superficial wound or passing virus or temporary setback. Sin is death. Sin is a wicked, deceitful heart. Sin is a spiritual condition of total corruption that affects every part of our lives. Now, think about that for a second. 
Our belief in total corruption simply reveals that we cannot fix ourselves and leads us to the one who can. It's just another way of saying that there is no area of my life that I can say I don't need Jesus for that. It's the belief that there's no part of your life that you don't need Jesus, and the gospel tells us that there's no part of your life that you can't have him. That he is not standing ready to redeem and restore joy in. To be blunt, if I'm talking about myself without Jesus, I am lame. I don't mean like lame, right? I mean broken. I mean unable to walk. I mean weak. Without Jesus, I am a lame man. I am a lame husband. I am a lame father. I'm a lame neighbor. I'm a lame friend. I am a lame pastor. And I will call on the name of Jesus. I will trust in the name of Jesus. And I will praise the name of Jesus in as many places as I believe I need Him. And I know I need Him in every one of those places and probably more that I didn't name. See, there are only two kinds of people here today. There are those who need to call on the name of Jesus to stand. And there are those who need to call on the name of Jesus to walk. Romans 10.13 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus stands ready to heal you, to give you the newness of life, to give you exactly what you actually need as you pursue what you want that only is sinful and wrong. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, anyone declares that I am a sinner in need of grace, I am a sinner in need of rescue, I am a slave who cannot save himself, free me Jesus, will be saved. But I also warn all of us that many have uttered the name of Jesus using their breath and their voice, but not their lives. And faith in the name of Jesus Christ believes and acts totally dependent on the Lord and different than the world. And that is why Paul can say in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I pray that we become a people who do that. I'm going to be a man in the name of Jesus, a husband in the name of Jesus, a father in the name of Jesus, a friend in the name of Jesus, a neighbor in the name of Jesus, a member and a pastor in the name of Jesus. I'm going to depend upon Him, praise Him, Offer him to as many people as I can because I believe he has the power to save, the power to fix, the power to heal. I pray that's what we become as God's people, that we will do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and not afraid to share that, but confident in proclaiming that because I believe it myself. I pray you do the same. Let's pray.